So you're here for week three, and if you've been here every week, you're a glutton for punishment. I'm grateful that you're back. Uh, we're doing a series on the realities about worship. I know it's an incredibly generic title. I couldn't think of what to do because I wanted to highlight main things, especially as coming in, I wanted to talk about general ideas that help enliven our view of what we do in worship. I think a lot of, uh, when we talk about the always reforming aspect of being part of the Reformation, a lot of that doesn't necessarily have to do with the things that we do, but the heart behind it. And so these last two weeks and now this week, we've, uh, we've been looking at things that I think as we, as we allow our minds to dwell on them a little bit, can start to affect and change the heart. And that's always what I as a minister uh, am really after. I think it's what's God, what God's after. He's not after your behavior. He's after your heart. Because He designed you and He knows that when He's got your heart, the behavior follows. It just And so uh, as Matt preached today, which was an awesome sermon, uh, as he preached today, we're not in the business of behavior modification as the church. That's just not our job. That's not our job description. Uh, our job description is to preach and proclaim the gospel. And what that means is that ministry is heart work. And what, we're, what we've been talking about, I would say, is heart stuff. The first week we talked about worship as encounter, meaning that we want our whole human selves to recognize that when we come to worship, it's not mere ritual. It's more than ritual. It's heart-filled, wholly engaged ritual. And that we are actually coming to encounter God who chooses in worship to reveal himself in a special way that he does in no other way, particularly through the preaching of the word and the sacraments. Also through, as we saw that first week, through singing, through the various ways that God brings us together to stir our affections and point us back toward him. And last week, we provocatively entered the realm of talking about worship as war, not fighting with one another, but fighting against the enemy. Uh, and if you weren't there and didn't hear that, I encourage you to go back because it was really powerful. I just felt, I just felt like it, uh, the things that we talked about, and I could sense as I was talking to you uh, throughout the week and hearing your reactions to it, uh, that it, it brought some new thoughts. And so my hope is that hopefully we're not just thinking new thoughts about worship, but it's translating into the way we come together and how we're engaging in worship. And this week, uh, I'm going to end on a real high note and talk about worship as death. How do you like that one? Um, so, worship as death. All right. Uh, a worship theologian who I very much respect said this. He said, Christianity is nothing if not a way of thinking about death. Christianity is nothing if not a way of thinking about death. Several months ago, someone posted on my Facebook feed this article written by an ER doctor who was reflecting on the way people died in the old days versus the way they die now. Uh, and I want to read some of it because it's, it's provocative. It's a little bit heavy, uh, but it makes, it makes a good point. In the old days, she writes, she, the dying one, would be propped up on a comfy pillow in fresh clean sheets under the corner window where she would in days gone past watch her children play. Soup would boil on the stove just in case she felt like a sip or two. Perhaps the radio softly played Al Jolson or Glenn Miller. Flowers sat on the nightstand and family quietly came and went. These were her last days. 
spent with familiar sounds in a familiar room with familiar smells that gave her a final chance to summon memories that will help carry her away. She might have offered a hint of a smile or a soft squeeze of the hand, but it was all right if she didn't. She lost her own words to tell us that it's okay to just let her die, but she trusted us to be her voice and we took that trust to heart. You see, that's how she used to die. We saw our elderly different then. This is how we used to see her before we became blinded by the endless tones of monitors and the whirs of machines, buzzers, buttons, and tubes that can add five years to a shell of a body that was entrusted to us and should have been allowed to pass quietly propped up in a corner room under a window, scents of homemade soup in case she wanted a sip. You can see now, uh, you see now, we can breathe for her, eat for her, and even pee for her. Once you have those three things covered, she can, instead of being gently cradled under the corner window, be placed in a nursing home and a penned-in cage of bed rails and soft restraints meant to keep her safe. The author will go on uh, to describe some of the gruesome medical realities that sometimes occur in prolonged scenarios like this one, and then concludes... We are now in a time of medicine where we will take that small child running through the yard, being chased by her brother with a grasshopper on his finger, and imprison her in a shell that does not come close to radiating the life of what she once had. We stopped seeing her, not intentionally perhaps, but we stopped. Now, I want to be careful because a lot of us can really resonate with some of these things, and the one-sided nature of this article uh, can hurt a little bit and sting if some of us are thinking through these. We have loved ones in these scenarios. Uh, and it's no knock against medical science that really does ha have life at its agenda, as its agenda. Um, but it's interesting what this points out about our culture and where we were versus where we are now in relation to this ominous reality that we will all face, apart from Jesus coming back, called death. And yet... Christianity is nothing if not a way of thinking about death. Again, we live in a culture that avoids death. Think, for instance, of all the multi-billion dollar industries that we've built whose root is the anxious fear of avoiding death. Pharmaceuticals, for instance, good as they are, medicine for us, the fact that they're a powerhouse kind of indicates that one of our fears is being sick and dying. And therefore, we have an industry built around preserving us from that reality. The beauty product industry. It takes away wrinkles in minutes. It makes you look 10 years younger. This will give you back the hair that you had in your 20s, right? It's telling you that you can actually reverse death. What you're driving towards, it'll take you the other direction, right? Our culture's obsession with youth and, and youngness, which is a relatively modern idea. It's not something that ancient cultures shared. They prized the ancients. You read the Proverbs, for instance, and you get a different picture, right? The health food industry. Think about this. I mean, we do our shopping. I go to Whole Foods. I go to Trader Joe's. I try to avoid all those things. But think about it. Why are we obsessed with it? Organic this and gluten-free that, hormone-free, cage-free free-range, antioxidant-rich, multivitamins, you know, all these things 
that uh, gets lots of dollars. The root of it is our fear of death, right? The fitness industry, CrossFit, Iron Tribe, P90X, protein shakes, right? They're all meant to reverse the inevitable trajectory toward death, right? Plastic surgery, plastic surgery. We're scared because as we get older and we look in the mirror, what we're looking at is death. What we're looking at is our aging, our wrinkles. And they scare us because we live in a culture that does not know how to reckon with death. Death is the unspoken anxiety of North American culture. It prompts much of our odd, airbrushed, death-denying obsessions. From CrossFit to Botox to gated communities to GMO-phobia. And we all bring these fears right into the worship service. Each week, death is the biggest elephant in the sanctuary. The Christian faith offers an answer to the plague of death. Death ushered into the world by our sin in the first Adam is undone by the work of the second. For as in Adam all die, Paul says, so in Christ all will be made alive. God tells us that our earthly death is not the end and that dying is not a wall, but a doorway. Because of this, Christians can look death in the face and rather pompously taunt with Paul. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? Jesus declawed death at the cross and all death can do is gently paw us into eternity. That's what's left for death. A Christian view of death is part of a bigger picture of how everything will end. What theologians call eschatology. Big word. Usually we think of eschatology when we think of it, if we think of it at all. We think of it in the context of end time scenarios that were left behind or raptured away. But eschatology is far more than a schedule of future events. A biblical view of the end, capital E, is rooted in Christ's ultimate defeat of death and evil and his full and final redemption and recreation of the world, a new heavens and a new earth. This eschatological vision is wonderfully summarized in the words of the Nicene Creed that we just recited, proclaimed together. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We look, we hope. You know, that's a hopeful word. It shouldn't be proclaimed as just yet another rote thing that we do. Because this is who we are. We are people that know what the end is. And therefore, it makes helps make sense of what is now. Again, we live in a culture that avoids death. And yet we have a faith whose word to the world is the only true, ultimate, and fulfilling answer to death's curse. And worship is a big part of what helps us remain tethered to that hopeful eschatological orientation. If we had time, I would be playing for you an awesome track by Johnny Cash called uh, The Man Comes Around. Have any of you heard it? See, in Johnny Cash's later years before he died, he started recording these EPs and full-length albums. And what he was doing was covering old folk songs, covering actually modern artist songs like Nine Inch Nails and uh, other 80s bands and things like that. And interspersed in some of these albums uh, were these very prophetic moments. 
And one of them was on this, this album that was entitled The Man Comes Around. It's like this piece of prophecy. And because his voice is so low and grovelly and old, you hear it like a sage who knows what death is, you know? Um, and so when you hear it, it's kind of funny because when you listen to the track, uh, he's prophesying very strong and biblical words about the final judgment that is to come. But for those of you who play guitar, it's played over just a chipper C major gallop. You know, he's just playing this kind of typical doom da da doom da da doom da da doom da doom da boom da, and it's just kind of this happy cowboy song. But he's prophesying as this happy word uh, is sung, a really difficult word. And one of the things that's odd about the experience of listening to this song as a piece of art is that why, how can there be a juxtaposition of such heavy words with such chipper music? And part of that is answered in the Christian orientation toward the end. Because what we know, what I preached at our Lenten lunch series months ago, was that our final judgment already happened at the cross. Do you get that? That our fear of standing before the throne of God and having the movie reel of all our sins played is done with. Because the movie reel that's going to play when we stand before God's throne and God says... You know, what do you have to do to prove that you might enter into kingdom? You say, look at my life. And on that movie reel will appear the life and work of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that, Christian? That is our end. Because of what happened on the cross, it's sealed. And our final judgment, according to Paul in Romans 3, has already taken place. It's a weird eschatological bending of time. But that's what God did there. And so we have an orientation toward that end, toward death. That helps make sense. It doesn't make light of death because death is really hard. Death hurts. Death is painful. Death makes us cry, of course, and it should. The Psalms are filled with praise songs and lament psalms that cry out about death and about the dying nature of the world. So it's not to minimize it, but it is to say that we have a, we have an orientation toward death as a result of it. I want us to expand our imaginations. Therefore, about what worship is and does, how it addresses death and hope. So I want to highlight three simple ways uh, that worship orients us to the end. And I think once I start doing it, it'll get really practical. It'll help make sense of it. But before we do, sci-fi lovers, if you love sci-fi, if you're a Star Trek nerd or a Star Wars nerd, this one's for you. I'd like us to ponder the wormhole. What is a wormhole? Wormholes are those legendary portals in space, speculated by some scientists and exploited in science fiction, through which unthinkably long galactic distances can be shortcut in an instant. If a ship travels through a wormhole, in the span of a few seconds, it can cross distances that would naturally take light years to traverse. Okay? Worship Worship, listen to this, is an eschatological wormhole. Worship is an eschatological wormhole. It shortcuts the gap between our present and God's future. And I'm not just speaking symbolically here. It's real. Worship brings the end to us. One of my favorite worship theologians who I quoted last week, Jean-Jacques von Allman, says it this way. Listen to this. Worship is par excellence, the sphere in which the future puts forth its buds in the present. Worship is par excellence, the sphere in which the future 
puts forth its buds in the present. Using another metaphor, this is awesome. Von Allman says that worship is where the church gets to try on her bridal garments. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Heaven, heaven, think about this. Heaven is a place of unceasing worship where the created order is gathered around the throne of God to marvel at His holiness, Revelation 4, and to extol the worthiness of the Lamb, Revelation 5. It's where joy eradicates mourning and where we will all feast at the great supper of God. It is the place of perpetual light and perfect healing. That's our future. And worship is the portal where all of that in heaven leaks back into our present in dribbles. It's the chink in time's armor, the hole in the dam between the now and the not yet. We struggle, you and I struggle to see heaven in worship, not because it's not there, but because seeing heaven requires God-given eyes of faith, which is only a gift of the Spirit. If you want to jump into this joy, here are the three things. Consider appropriating these three things into your worship experience each week. First, when you begin worship, when you enter into worship, recognize that you're stepping into an already moving stream. We talked about, I just quoted a lot of those passages in Revelation that point to the fact that right now and yesterday and tomorrow, there are heavenly beings gathered around the throne of God, constantly worshiping Him. They've got a 7-Eleven song that they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Repeat. It's more like a seven infinity song. They're saying it a bunch of times, singing it, praising His name. That's what's happening. And when you and I gather for worship, when we gather, we get to step into that while it's going on. It's like the program is happening and we're jumping in mid-program. You know, We're stepping into this stream and therefore, it's not just the physical bodies that you see who are gathered for worship that day. The angels, the elders, the saints who have gone before, who surround His throne and praise His name, the martyrs, the people that you don't know that you will know, they're all gathered around God's throne. And they, they're seeing Him with a glory that you and I strain to try to apprehend in worship. We're stepping into that. That's what worship is. Uh, others have described worship like an embassy of heaven. What is an embassy? An embassy is a place where national soil ceases to exist and on this ground is some other nation's soil. Therefore, when we gather for worship, we're actually not on American soil. We are on heavenly soil because God has mystically transplanted that reality. And you and I are oriented toward all of that and caught up in it. We are stepping into the already moving stream. That's one of the symbols, folks, behind the procession. Why you see a bunch of people processing. Uh, it's not just some empty ritual. It's meant to give us a visual, aesthetic picture that we're stepping into that already moving stream. So maybe think less about the rather us-boring-looking people in robes trotting down the line <laughs> and use that to elevate, elevate very excited, passionate beings who are gathered around the throne that you and I get to jump into and join in praising God in all His glory. Isn't that beautiful? 
Number two. So that's number one. When you begin worship, recognize that you're stepping into an already moving stream. Let your imagination just run with that as you worship. Number two, when you engage the liturgy, receive well the law, the word that kills you, that speaks to your flesh. Again, if we're talking about worship as death, it orients us toward the end. But there's another aspect to death that worship is all about. And it is about killing your flesh. We talked about that in week one. Worship shouldn't feel comfortable at all times. It should feel very discomforting. What in the world am I talking about? If you were in the nine o'clock or if you're in 11 o'clock, we sang this hymn. These are verses four and five. Check this out. Great, great words, great lyrics. This is part of the reason that I started setting old hymns to new music rather than trying to write my own lyrics because I just found we could spend the rest of eternity uh, unearthing better lyrics than I could ever write, you know? So let not, listen, to, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness, which is a wonderful word for our culture, nor of fitness fondly dream. Stop dreaming about that. Stop dreaming about being able to come to God perfectly because it's just not going to happen. That's killing you right there. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Isn't that a brilliant line? All the fitness God requires is actually your deficit. What do you bring to worship? Negative balance, right? That's so interesting. What's your entry ticket into worship? It's not being dressed nicely. It's not sort of knowing all the, the mores of the room, being a lifelong Episcopalian, you know, or really buying into everything. Your ticket into worship is your need. That's what God says. Hey, you want to come into worship? Just give me that, your need. And guess what? I will fill it. <laughs> Look at verse 5. This is awesome. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. I see Jesus at the throne of God pleading the merit of his blood for us. And then there's a, there's a charge. Venture on him. Venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. And you see, the reality is you and I don't want to hear that we're dead. And the part of us that doesn't want to hear that we're dead is the part of us that wants to let other trusts intrude. We want to say, I'm coming to God. I had a pretty good week. I didn't blow it. You know, I'm okay. You know, uh, and so, and this is telling us, don't do that because you actually subvert the word of God from being able to have its power over you in that moment. It, and therefore, the word of God needs to kill you. It needs to tell your self-righteousness, you've got nothing. It needs to do what happens at the beginning of our liturgy. Uh, I mean, do you, do you hear this? The beginning of every week's worship service, what, what do we pray? Almighty God, unto whom uh, all hearts are open. That's not a nice thought. It's not open like, oh, God, my heart's open to you. I'm ready to receive. It's open like you filleted a fish or cut open an animal after hunting it down. It's that kind of idea. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts... Why? Because the rest of the prayer says, no secrets are hidden from you. I've been cut open and you see everything. You see the outside. You see the inside. It's all there. Guts, grossness, you see it all. That's right at the top of our worship service. Why? So that the Word of God can kill you and tell you, die, Adam, die. Die, Eve, die. Why? Because on the other side of that, when you hear, Almighty God, absolve thee of all thy sins, you have full and final forgiveness in Jesus. The new Adam, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
rises up once again and claims and works and the not I but Christness of our faith starts to come out again, right? That's what worship intends to do. Or even just a little bit later, even more than just the uh, the beginning prayer, Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open. We have something that we always do at the beginning of the liturgy, which is what? It's either a recitation of the Ten Commandments or it's a summary of the law. Why in the world would you do that? Here's, here's what it says. Hear what the Lord Jesus Christ saith. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What is the liturgy saying to you in that moment after that? What should you hear whispered or shouted? How's that going for you? How's that going for you? Doing a good job of that one? Loving God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength. How's that working for you? You know, because again, God wants to make clear that we, we, he wants to make sure that no other trust intrude and that we venture on him and venture on him wholly, right? Completely. But if there's a part of us that can be left and say, I'm bringing something to the table here, that's not good enough. And we've actually, if we think that we've kind of lived up to what God has called us to do or asked us to be, our view of the law is actually too low. We haven't heard the law in all its full throat with all its uh, powerful absolutism, you know. But when you hear something like that and you're hearing for real and not just going through the motions, love Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul and with all thy mind. How's that going for you, right? Which is why our liturgy does what right after that? What do we say right after that? (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) right? And it should be said like that, right? You heard the tone. He's like, you know, Southern mercy, you know? It's that kind of thing. Like, oh, it's when we see something ugly or shocking. That's how it should feel because all of a sudden our ugliness, our, our shock has been exposed. We are frauds, you know? And we do a good job of painting it up and making ourselves look really pretty. But God is not fooled. We are filleted. And he doesn't want any other trust to intrude. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, We say it three times, not just once. It's like mercy, mercy, mercy. You know, you need it three times to just get it in the system. Uh, this was funny. Last night, I came back very late on a plane. I was out of town in Detroit this week. Um, and as I was, as we were landing in the plane, uh, we had just landed and we were still taxiing. And the flight attendant comes in onto the intercom and says, ladies and gentlemen, we are still on an active taxiway and therefore need all seatbelts fastened until we reach the terminal. And there was a long pause. And then came back on the intercom. Seeing a loose seatbelt dangling in the aisle is a clear indication that your seatbelt <laughs> is not fastened, right? <laughs> The airplane did the same thing you guys just did. We giggled. Uh, and we started to hear a seatbelt being vigorously fastened all in that moment, right? Sometimes we think that we can hide from God's declaration of law. We hear it and we freeze. Maybe he's not talking about me. We think, he probably can't see me, we say. Certainly he's talking about someone else. You know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's, that's those other guys we insist. But then the moment comes when, like Nathan to David, or like the the flight attendant over the intercom, you are the man. 
everyone should feel that moment in worship. It's a very naked and individuating moment. Because if we're going to feel the goodness of the gospel, we need to feel that death, that killing, that very much singles us out. At that moment in the liturgy, it should feel like us and God. It's the most not corporate part of corporate worship. It is an individual before God. And God, the hound of heaven, has backed you into a corner and has brandished his fangs. He's there. That's him, right? We should feel the law like that in worship. We should feel singled out, exposed, and pointed to with the stern finger of righteousness, right? So when you hear these kinds of things in worship, strain, brothers and sisters, strain to make it something real. Listen to God speaking directly to you, calling you to the floor, calling you to account, because hearing this clearly and receiving it is what will make the gospel clear, true, beautiful, more believable, and more lovely to you. When the absolution comes, it won't sound like wah, wah, wah. It'll feel like resurrection. That's what we want to have happen. That's what we want to experience is the in Christness of the moment, death and resurrection. So that was the second thing, right? First thing I encourage you to do is remember you're stepping into an already moving stream. Secondly, I encourage you to listen for and allow yourself to be singled out by God and experience the death that worship brings. But thirdly, this is a good part. When you come to the table... See the ending celebration before you. When you come to the table, see the ending celebration before you. I did not grow up in an Episcopalian and liturgical context. I grew up in um, a Southern Baptist church in Hawaii, of all places. Um, And the way that they would do communion, which is once a quarter, was there would be a long table up front with um, a big cloth over it. And at the appropriate time, and that was the one Sunday where everybody was wearing black suits, and uh, the deacons would come forward and they'd stand on either side of the table and they would start to fold it. And what does that look like culturally? A funeral, right? It looks like they're taking the flag off of a casket and folding it up. Very reverential, very respectful. Uh, and it was meant to say that, that communion is something penitential. You come and you come and confess your sins and God will give you grace, but it's penitential. That is one Important, true, biblical aspect of communion. There is another whole side to communion. Because in the scriptures it says, we remember Christ's death, that's the penitential part, until he comes again. That's actually the happy part. And when we come to the table, we come to see the table not only... um, to experience the, the death of Jesus and, and visualize it and take it in, but to see the future feast of the Lamb that is before us in eternity. And that's a happy place. That is, it's, it's the party that's going to blow all party wherever it is. Think of the most ruckus earthly party you've ever seen. Miami or uh, London or wherever. And then multiply it by infinity and you will have a smidgen of what that party will be like. And that table is meant to give you that vision. These are tokens. These are little bits of what's going to be in abundance. When the wine flows and when we're all eating together and if you're gluten-free, it's probably going to be this awesome gluten-free spread 
uh, the best kind, you know. It's just God is going to provide the feast to end all feasts, okay? This is in Revelation, folks, and this is what the table is all about. So here I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Anglican history. I will tell you that there's significance behind whether the table is called an altar or a table. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, who was the primary architect of our prayer books, if you read in his earliest prayer books, he actually made a significant change to the name of that place. He called it a table. In 1549, which was kind of a partially realized reformational liturgy, it was called altar. But if you look three years later, he's changed all of those references to altar to table. Why? Because he wants this reality to be highlighted as well. He wants this reality of the table. And he actually, as weird as this sounds, moved or, or asked to move the furniture. So the altar wasn't back behind some inaccessible place, but was actually forward uh, in the kind of architecture of our building. It would be more like it's sitting in the choir loft right there in the middle. And we all come up and gather around that table together. And the minister is just one of the many around that table. And we all partake together. Why? So that we get this eschatological vision. So that we get this eschatological vision that the table is a place of, of not just penitence, and the receiving of unworthy sinners. But the other side of that, which is the ruckus party, where God invites and Jesus invites all the riffraff from the streets, you and me, the riffraff from the streets, to come and celebrate with Him. And every time we come to the table, the future leaks back, wormholes into the present, and we get an actual foretaste of what that reality will be. I really hope that that enhances, strengthens, and empowers your experience of communion. You know, so those three things are what I got for you today. And we've got some time for questions. Uh, I got provocative at the end. Uh, so feel free to go ahead. Yes. Yes, it did for that very reason. Yep. I did. I knew that it used to be up against the wall. Uh, and one of the things that Cranmer was anxious uh, about portraying in the physical placement of the minister was the access of the table. Nothing standing between the congregation and the table. Ministers behind so that you got, Jesus says, come. There's nothing left. Once I pronounce absolution over you, there's nothing left but just to come. Don't need any kind of cleansing ritual. I've done it. It's over. You don't need to somehow, because I've given you some grace now, muster up the righteousness so that you can get there. It's done. Come. And that's one of the things that I think was really valuable about pulling the table out from the wall was in a subconscious way, at least for us, whether we knew the symbolism of it or not, it gave us a little more sense of access and joy in what's typically viewed uh, from us is something that we have to be really careful about getting close to, you know, proximity. We don't want too much proximity. And Jesus says, Riff Raff, come on in. You know, that's, that's in a sense, the way the table is supposed to be counterbalanced with a lot of the ways that we view it as a, a holy, right, rightfully so, and a sacred place where God meets with his people, as we talked about in week one. Yes, so thank you. Yes. So like that tension between Riff Raff, come on in, yeah. Like the church I grew up in, which was a wonderful church, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, but as part of, I guess, their particular communion liturgy, 
they would always read from 1 Corinthians, like anyone who comes to the table in an unworthy manner right. or drinks judgment on themselves. And I remember right. like, as a young adult or a kid, I was like terrified. Yep, like, yep, like, totally. He eats and drinks damnation upon I, himself, I right? Like, I don't know. If I'm a, you know. I felt like a lot of kind of right. thinking about other things, like what I'm going to have for lunch. Does that mean I'm coming up? And, and so the, that tension between the yeah. riffraff come on in and... Coming in an unworthy manner. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, that passage in Corinthians, we really do need to see in its context, in what was going on in Corinth in that moment. Because some people were just outlandishly abusing the table. Um, The wealthy were actually eating all the elements, and there was none left for anybody else. And just betraying that the heart wasn't there. The heart was in some other spot. And they were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, you know. The reality is, if we're honest about the law, every week you and I eat and drink in an unworthy manner, right? And so it is an invitation to broken, dirty, unworthy sinners to come. And yeah, I think what's great is that we have the reverence down. I mean, that's something that you and I all resonate with and feel and are grateful for, and I am too. I go to all three services on Sunday morning just to kind of wash myself in the culture of worship here. And I'll tell you, the most sacred time for me is 7.30. Because I'm not doing anything in the service and I just get to be a congregant and receive from the Lord. And it's, it's always really powerful. I'm so grateful for that time. It kind of sets me up for the ministry of the morning. But thank you. That's a good word. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it was in the architecture. So, I mean, the altar, they want, uh, in the medieval Roman church, they wanted to make it look like an altar. So it looked like a big stone table, right? A big stone slab where you're supposed to chop an animal open on, you know? Uh, and Cranmer was much more interested in the visual being table. Table, dinner table, feast table, right? Uh, and so that's why you had this tension of, putting up and taking down rude screens because rude screens and those kinds of things make things look more altery. Which, for Cranmer, the, the kind of guy who led us into our tradition, our reformational tradition, for Cranmer, it was a big uh, roadblock into understanding what the table really is and, frankly, what the gospel really is uh, and how free and scandalous the gospel is. That's what he was trying to do. What he was trying to do. Yeah. And the other thing that brings to mind is that God gave his people, Israel, the Passover feast to look back towards the blood that was over the doorpost yep. and forward towards Christ's blood. That's right. We have communion, which looks back forward, backward and forward. Looks back towards yep. the Last Supper and forward to the Supper with the Lamb. Yeah, communion is the great sort of uh, trans-temporal reality. Time before, time after, it's just sucking it all together in this one moment where you and I are together. We remember things in the past. And... Do a, do a word study of the biblical word for remembrance, anamnesis in Greek, or zakar, where I get my name, Zachary, uh, in Hebrew. And uh, super cool word study. You study what the church has reflected upon as we reflect on remembrance and what that means. It's more than just recalling a past event. It's uh, being mystically present with those who were there, uh, which is why some hymn writers call the Holy Spirit the great remembrancer. Because when the Holy Spirit indwells us, all of a sudden, all the experiences that the Holy Spirit has had in the past, we get wrapped up in. Which means 
we were present at the cross too, watching it happen, watching our sins being pinned to the wall and paid for because the Holy Spirit, as he hovered, was there. You know, it's cool. It just, yeah, it's kind of like nerdy stuff, but it makes me really happy. It's not nerdy. Actually, it's not. You're right. I shouldn't be that apologetic. I uh, really should um, be okay with it because it's life-giving to the faith. All right, folks. Awesome. Thank you for these three weeks. We'll uh, do something probably in the fall together, but I appreciate you coming. Thank you.